join me on a dusty baseball field at Orchard Mesa Little League. I'm not going to tell you what year in the 80s it was, but I was in sixth grade, and I had made my way up to the highest level of Little League. It was my first year in that league. It was hot. It was always hot. There was no grass in the field, and it was dry and dusty, and I finally got on base. I hit a ball. I'll never forget. I hit it, caught it right here, and it looped like up and over the shortstop. I rounded first, and I was like, yeah! I was so excited. And I had this coach who shouldn't have been called coach. He should have been called a critic. He wasn't like, hey, good eye out there, Folkers, good job. No, none of that. I rounded first base, and um, he just, he, all he did was criticize. He never said anything, didn't tell you how to play the game. He told you what you did wrong, or he just heckled you continually. Well, I was finally on base in the majors, and I was excited because now I could lead off. I didn't have to steal second, which I was fast when I was young. I had jets. They were small jets, but I could still move pretty good. And um, I was excited. I was going to steal my first base, whether I had the steal sign or not. And, um, and so the third base coach is out there doing his thing, you know, doing his sign, and I'm watching, but I knew I was going. The pitcher gets, uh, gets on the bag, gets ready to, to pitch. He's in the open stance, and I just, boom, I start leading off. And I kind of did what I saw the major leaguers do, you know. Ricky Henderson was real good at this time, have a hand towards first. But I didn't know how to lead off. He had never taught us how to lead off. And so I'm leading off. By the time I get done leading off, I am halfway between second base and first base. And my coach is screaming, what are you doing? And I was like, I'm leading off, but I don't want to get, you know, I don't want to, like, get thrown out at second base, so I was nervous, and he's like, what are you doing? Their coach is shouting, pick him off. I panic. I jet for second base. Nothing happens. Nobody throws a ball. Everybody's like, whoa, that kid just stole second base. I get to second base. I'm like, oh, whose house? I was so excited. I was like, yeah, my coach is like, what are you doing? And he's yelling at me, and then he turns, and he's, like, mocking me to the team, and I was like, what's your problem? I stole second base. That was great. No matter what we did, he criticized. Win, lose, or draw, criticized, mocked. He was a critic. He was a critic. Now, fast forward with me. Just a couple years, by this time we had moved to San Diego, and I had Coach Enright on my freshman baseball team. This is the only time Coach Enright will make an appearance in a church sermon because everything else is not allowed. He was a different cat. He was a, he was a great coach, and he was just different. Oh, my goodness, I have so many memories of him right now. And, um, and I remember we were at a game, and I was watching their pitcher warm up, and I wasn't on the starting list, starting lineup. I was pretty sad about that. And I'm watching their pitcher warm up, and the dude was just throwing. He had no action on the ball. It was just straight ball in. And it was maybe 48, 52 miles an hour. I mean, it was batting practice. We knew we were going to shell him. Short porch out in left field, we were going to do some work. And it was so exciting. And I went up to the chain link fence, and I was like, Coach Enright, Coach, Coach, Coach. He turns around, and he's like, what? And I knew he liked me. He laughed at my jokes. He was always, like, giving me a hard time. And I said to him, I said, Coach, this dude is throwing meat right now. He is serving it up, and we can eat all day. And he goes, what did you just say? I said, he's throwing meat. And he goes, that's your nickname. His name's Meat. And I'm like, what? I don't want a nickname. And I want to start. And everybody called me Meat all season long uh, for years afterwards. Uh, if there's certain people, if I see from my high school, that's what they call me because that was my nickname from Coach Enright. But I said to him about three games into the season, I was getting no playing time. I was frustrated. I'm like, what's going on? And honestly, I could really, I had a really good arm and I was a really good batter and base runner. I couldn't figure it out. 
coach, why am I not playing? And he said, Eric, I, I shout it to you all the time in practice. He said, you've got a crazy arm. You've got a cannon attached to the right side of your body. But here's the thing. You don't throw to the cutoff man. You don't even aim for him. You look at where you want to throw and you gun it in. And you've made some great throws. But you will not hit your cutoff. And I'm like, well, why would I? I can get it there. I mean, I don't have to hop it from center field to second base. And he said to me, he said, you've got to hit your cutoff. That's an important part of baseball. And he took the time and explained to me the centrality of the cutoff man, that he can turn around and read who's most vulnerable on the base and get the ball to the right place, that it's their job to get it in, not my job to see how far and fast I can throw it. I listened to my coach. He worked with me on it. And I started the last four games of the season, not because I was a great athlete, athlete, but because my coach taught me something, I applied it, he saw the improvement, and he rewarded me. He was a coach. He was a coach, and I loved that about him. I want to introduce you to one of the greatest coaches, really the Tommy Lasorda, or, you know, the great coach for the, uh, the manager for the Los Angeles Dodgers, or, um, or maybe Bobby Cox for the Brave, Braves. Like, like, the Apostle Paul is the Tommy Lasorda or Bobby Cox of the first century church. He's the best manager the church has ever seen, honestly. He was a coach. He coached the church. He taught them things. He built them up and encouraged them, and he taught them things that would make them live with a glorious witness to Jesus Christ. So take a minute with me, and let's tune our ear into Colossians chapter 3, one of the greatest managerial coaches' speeches you'll ever hear into the ear of the early church in the city of Colossae. The Apostle Paul, with his hat on, right, and that little baseball t-shirt you wear, standing there talking to the church in Colossae, coaching them in the Christian faith. He said this, since then, you were raised in Christ, Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things, for you died and, you were, and your life is now hidden, buried, hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your very life, when he appears, you will appear with him in glory. So put to death, therefore, everything that is from your old nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. And because of these things, the wrath of God is coming to this earth. You yourself used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, so not lived. So now you must rid yourself also of anger, rage, malice, um, slander, and uh, filthy language from your lips. And don't lie to one another. Don't lie to one another since you have taken off your old self with its practices and you have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge and the image of its creator. Here, there is no Jew nor Gentile, circumcised or uncircumcised, Scythian, barbarian, slave, or free. Here Christ is all and he is in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, gentleness, humility, and patience. Bear with one another and forgive one another if any of you has an offense or a grievance against someone. 
And over all, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these things, put on love, which binds them together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ dwell in your hearts, remembering that as members of one body, like, kind of like a coach here, right? You're one team. There's a lot of different positions. You're one team. Paul's saying, as members of one body, you are called to peace. And be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs of the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts and whatever you do, in word or in deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father in him. Wives, submit to your husbands for this is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and don't speak harshly with them. Children, obey your parents in everything. This is pleasing to the Lord. Fathers, don't embitter or exasperate your children or they will become discouraged. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters in everything and not just when they're looking at you, when their eyes on you. Don't do it just then to curry their favor. No, do it with sincerity of heart, out of reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work with all your heart as though working for the Lord, not for human masters. For you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord Jesus, whom you are serving. It is the Lord Jesus Christ that you serve. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongdoings, and there will be no favoritism. The Apostle Paul gives us this beautiful image and understanding of what it is to be coached up in something. He, he gets their attention and calls them to something. And what I would like to do is kind of point out that not only did uh, the church of the first century have the apostle Paul, but they also had the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible. They had Solomon as well. And Solomon is one of the great coaches of the ancient world. Actually, what, there's some language that goes on in what we're going to talk about today that comes out of the book of Proverbs. Now, the book of Proverbs, it was written by Solomon, who I would say, let's call him this, um, Tommy Lasorda came before uh, Coach Bobby Cox of the Braves. Um, and they're two, I think they're two of the best coaches, managers ever, and I'm not even fans of those teams. Um, but here's the thing. Uh, Solomon would be the Tommy Lasorda, the, the one who came first. Bobby Cox, Paul would be like Bobby Cox, right? So let's talk about the, the, the Solomon coach for a minute. He had a certain way of talking in the book of Proverbs, which he did the majority of the writing of the Proverbs. There were some other authors, but this book of Proverbs was wise sayings, most of them coming out of the person, King Solomon, the wisdom of Solomon. And he would use this phrase a lot. Coaches have phrases they use. His phrase was, my son. My son, and he said that phrase 27 times throughout the book of Proverbs. And it's a term definitely targeting his children, his offspring. You can hear him saying to his son Rehoboam, Rehoboam, listen to me, my son, listen to me. And he would instruct them. But in the council in the court of the temple or of the palace, there would have been all of Rehoboam's friends. There would have been all the people younger than Solomon listening to his wisdom. And Solomon would have been very much the great patriarch of the, of the nation of Israel in that day and age. As a king, he would have been somebody they looked to like a father. So he's, he's using this language and he's speaking first to his children, then to the court, but also to the nation, offering them wisdom from a paternal level. He would say, my son, my son. So when you hear my son, you can hear it as my child, 
You can think of it directed as uh, from someone who is wise and speaking to other people who are listening to them. That's the kind of context of it. So I want you to take this, what we've talked about, and set it down for just a second. Because there's a phrase that will help us understand this better in just a minute. We'll deal with this, but there's a phrase that will help us maybe kind of get into the understanding of this. Have you ever gotten a call from somebody? Like, you know, Erica calls me. Hey, I need to, or calls and I don't answer and she texts, I need to talk to you now. The first words that go through my head and the first thing I say to her, is everything okay or should I be concerned? Have you ever had that? Like your boss says to you, I need to talk to you right away. Okay, should I be concerned? You step on the scale makes a different noise than it's ever made before and it shows a number that seems utterly impossible and you say, should I be concerned? You, um, you, you watch the stock market and the Dow just dives. Should I be concerned? Right, we have these things. The price of milk triples and you have 14 eight sons in your house. Should I be concerned? Yes, and so, so should the cows, right? Like you're like, oh my goodness. Or maybe the worst thing, you've really finally just gotten into a certain style and you notice that no one else is wearing skinny jeans anymore and you're downtown hall and you're like, should I be concerned that I'm the only one in skinny jeans? Like there's these moments where you ask the question, should I be concerned? And I think that's an important question when we talk about our children. All these little things that make us concerned kind of maybe be funny. Maybe some of them are um, real and we've dealt with them. But I think one of the things we should do is say, are we concerned about our children? We should be concerned about them. We should watch them and know them. We should have our eye on them. And we should be like literally, well, maybe this. What things should I be concerned about? Maybe that's a question we should answer as a church. What things should we be concerned about in the lives of our children's, uh, our children? Because sometimes we have these concerns and they run a little more, well, honestly, you're like, is my kid popular? Did they make the team, the musical, the, the certain chair and band? Did they, um, did they, I don't know, make a certain choir? Are they included? Do they have a good friend group? Are they lonely? Um, are, are they pretty? Are they popular? Now, some of these things um, seem pretty superficial, right? And, and we as parents, of course, we're empathetic and we want them to be included. But here's the thing. Satan trips us up with the trivial a lot and we worry about these superficial things. Are they pretty? Are they making all the things they wanna be and stuff? And we can get tripped up with the trivial things and miss the more important things. We should care about some other things as parents and as leaders in the lives of children. But in looking maybe more long-term, here's some of the things that um, I think we should think about. We should be concerned about their spiritual, mental, and emotional health. Also their physical health too, forgot that one. We should be concerned about those things. We should be attending to the wellness of those things. We should be concerned about what they're doing. We should be concerned about who they're out doing things with, who their friends are, who's influencing them, who has a voice of influence in their life, and who they're muting and not letting influence their life. You should care about where they go, who they go with, and what they do and say. 
and what is being said to them. You should like be concerned about how people are, are trying to form their character and speak into their life. There can be very wounding things going on. We should care that our children, what's being said to our children, but we should also be concerned about how they themselves look in the mirror, what they see when they see themselves. We should be concerned about their image of self. And we should be concerned about how they view God and how they, how they look upon the divine. We should be very concerned. I would say we should be chiefly concerned with how they view and also know the Lord Jesus Christ. That should be a concern of, the, of ours. But then how do we show our concern? I think that's a following question that should be. Those are some of the things we should be watching for and maybe what we should be concerned about. But then how do we show that concern? How do I express it? Here's one of the, the just failings I think that a lot of us make. I can own this for myself. Um, we, we show concern maybe in anger at times an exasperated behavior, your, your, child, uh, your child makes uh, doesn't do well in something that maybe came naturally to you, and you, instead of showing concern for their development, you show concern for the way it looks, and you act like, why aren't you doing better? Why aren't you, you know, and you lean in on them, and you're harsh, and you're angry, and you're, you, well, you're a critic, and you're constantly critiquing Maybe you're, you're coming at them in anger and it constantly feels like they're disappointing you. We, we need to know that how we show concern will really manifest itself in the image I gave you of those two coaches. One will coach and build them up and make them better. The other, they detest. I cannot remember that coach's name. I can hardly see his face. All I see is these wild gestures. So are we critical of them? It comes back to that idea. Coach or critic, which one will it be? Sometimes we think we're being a good coach and all we do is hammer our kids. I, guys, I am guilty of this. I, I can push like that and it's not fair to our kids. It's not fair. It's not right. Actually, you wanna know how it looks and maybe take the edge off of it uh, so it's not quite so serious? Check this video out. This will help you understand how we may think we're being a good coach and the opposite is true. We're being very much a critic. Check this video out. When are you gonna practice more? We need to kick it in, practice more. <laughs> It's perfect. Isn't that clip perfect? Like how many coaches, like I, oh man, I can see a lot of my coaches, focus, like I hear my name still. And a lot of them were great coaches who were trying to coach me up, but that passion comes out of them. And sometimes we as parents feel very passionately, but we are literally, literally exasperating our children. We are critical of everything. Friends, we do this, I do this, I know it's not good. We have to attend to it because scripture, the apostle Paul, 
right? The Apostle Paul, actually he's on this side, Bobby Cox. Uh, the Apostle Paul says this in Colossians 3, uh, verse 21. Fathers, do not embitter or exasperate your children or they will become discouraged. They will become discouraged. They may be wildly talented, but in their discouraged attitude, they won't achieve. That team I played for with the bad coach, we had a losing record, and we had the best squad on the field. Every time we took the field, we were the best team, but we didn't win because we were discouraged. Fathers, and let's put in mothers, okay? It should be very much a parent language in this. Parents, do not exasperate or embitter your children or they will become discouraged. So let's look at some of the characteristics of a critic. What does a critic look like? It's a Greek word used in Colossians. Of course it was. Paul wrote it in Greek. I'm not going to try to say the word because... I'm just not going to say it. But here's what it means, and this is how we, we can look at it, and this is what it means. It means to stir up strife, to arouse to anger, to make someone angry. I just think it's like poking the bear, you know, and the bear gets mad. That's what you're doing. That was a good bear sound. Did, yeah, I may put a picture of bear up on that, Kyle. But to, to arouse their anger and just to kind of needle at them, to provoke, to irritate just to irritate, to incite, or to be a bad example. These are the characteristics of a critic. Someone who just makes you feel itchy and constantly nervous of what's going to be said to you. But what are some of the characteristics of a coach? Because instead of being a critic, we must look at the characteristics of a coach, a wise and loving leader. We must speak the truth in love and one of the great things, here's why I want you to go back to that Solomon thing. Remember the, the Tommy Lasorda? I want to bring the Solomon conversation back to the forefront because we are going to use Solomon as the type for what we have to do. Solomon used the term my son 27 times in the book of Proverbs. And we have eight things that we can actually do, eight characteristics we can lean into Eight specific ways we can apply this. Eight things we can do. I want you to hear this. There are ways you can do it. You may not be great at all of them, but what happens in the book of Proverbs is every one of these things that we talk about has a series of Proverbs attached to it. And those Proverbs are the places where Solomon used the term, my son. And he used it in, um, I think it's three cases in the very first one. The first one is to engage, get their attention. So he uses it three different times in the book of Proverbs, pointing them, Solomon does, to engage. Engage, get their attention, whether it's getting on eye level or Taking them away for a weekend. Just take them away. Get them away from the noise and take them with you. Get eye to eye with them and spend that time with them, investing in them emotionally, listening to them, just talking with them. If you can't break away for a weekend, literally just say, hey, let's go for a walk. And they'll be like, oh, my word, I don't want to walk. My feet are heavy. And they'll walk off with you. But here's the thing. If you go away and get them on the walk and you get a couple minutes out the door, they're going to start talking and you can engage with them. Solomon, the great coach of the Old Testament, would say, my son, engage with them. Encounter them. Reach out. Make the effort. Do that. The second thing he says is warn them. Warn them. Five times in the book of Proverbs, Solomon says, my son, and then he gives a warning. 
right? In baseball, it'd be like, hey, don't lead off till you're halfway between first and second base. Take about four steps and make sure you know how hard the pitcher throws and how quick his pick move is because if he turns to pick you, you got to get back to the bag, right? That's what we think. And, and he says, warn them, warn them. Coach them in the things that could go wrong. Parents, you know things that your kids don't know. Haven't you ever said that to your kids? Or maybe as a teacher or an instructor, you've said, look, don't do that. It's going to hurt you. Don't do that. And the, and the kid sometimes goes on to do that, and they come back with a bruise or a scar, and they're like, how'd you know? Because I did it when I was little, and I knew the outcome. I knew what would happen. You, you see them heading into trouble? Warn them. Here's the thing. If you saw me out frolicking on an Irish cliffside, like a big open Irish hill, and I'm playing frisbee? Yeah, feels like I'm playing frisbee with an Irish shepherd, because that's what we'd do. And he whips the frisbee, and I'm chugging to get it, because I want to impress the Irishman. He's like, ooh, you know, he's all cheerful and Irish, and I'm running looking at the frisbee, and you see me headed for a cliff, and you don't warn me, I'm going to be very hurt when I go off that cliff, and one of my last thoughts will be, you're kind of a jerk. You should have warned me. You should have told me there was a cliff there. The cliff is more important than catching the Frisbee. And why did the Irish shepherd throw it off the cliff? I don't know. There's a different story there, but still, stick with me. Warn them. Warn them and love them. Be, be intentional to warn them and keep them from doing something they love that could be heading for a cliff. Warn them. Speak up to them before they do something, before they need it. Warn them. Take them on a car ride, literally. Car rides are the perfect time where you can have great conversations with your kids. Great conversations with your kids. Some of my best conversations with my daughter happen on car rides. Not when she's driving, because she says, Daddy, quit yelling at me. But still, um, when I'm driving and she's with me, we can have great conversations. I love those times with Bella Boo. And here's the thing, when you take those times... You can say and insert things into the conversation. You know, I had a friend who once did that when they give you an idea. Oh, yeah, I had a friend who once did that. Here's a picture of him now. And they go, oh, you know, because they see it and they go, oh, that didn't work out. It's not wise. Be age appropriate in your warnings, but give them the opportunity to see that it doesn't always work out. Maybe be wise in what you do. And, um, you know, I, I say age appropriate. Just remember that... Um, Scary stories that maybe aren't scary to you can really rattle little kids. Man, I have a couple stories that I won't tell, but just be age appropriate in the way you, um, in the way you warn them. Don't make the warning too graphic or terrifying or they will freeze up. Example A. If you want to know a story, come to me. I'll tell you about it. All right. Um, the third thing is this. Help them hide the word of God in their heart. Solomon tells them. This great coach of the Old Testament tells them, hide the word of your God in your heart, my son. Hide the word of God in your heart. In, um, in four places in, in Proverbs, he, he encourages them, hide the word of God in your heart. So what does that mean? If you have little kids, read the, Bibles to, the Bible to them. Read the Bible stories to them. Let them hear them. Let them be common knowledge to them. Let them get familiar with the characters and the why behind them. Hear, let them hear the Bible stories. Read it to them. Read the Bible studies. It's why we get, or the Bible stories. It's why we give the Jesus Storybook Bible to all our baptism families. They're great stories to read that little kids can digest, and they all point to Jesus Christ. But maybe they're um, in upper elementary or middle school, and you can do what um, 
what my wife's family did. Erica's mom and dad would read the Bible every night at the dinner table. And to engage them, and Erica's told me this, it's one of her favorite things that her dad would do. He would read the, the Bible story, but he would put a blank in. So he would literally say, and blank hurled the stone at the giant, you know? And, and they would have to guess at the end of the story who the blank was. And they loved it. And what did it do? It took them from, oh, we have to read the Bible too. I know who this is. And they leaned in and they learned. And she developed an affection for the word of God because it was read before her and she was invited to hear it and partake in it. So use the blank game. If they're older, invite them to do the wisdom devotions in the book that we have this year. And then talk with them about it. Have a conversation about it. Here's the maybe big ticket item. Have them memorize this passage in Colossians. And I can tell you what they say. They'll say if they're older, they'll be like, I can't memorize it. It's too hard. Yet they can tell you the lyric to every song that's in the top 40 right now. They know every word. They can do it. You ought to make it fun. Help them do it and join them in it. Have a contest with it. Reward the winner. I'm not above bribery. Get the word of God hidden in their heart because one day I believe that scripture is gonna get constricted in our culture and we may not have free access to the Bible, but they can never take the word of God that's hidden in our heart. Ooh, hide the word of God in your heart. Uh, Number four, provide good discipline. Provide good discipline. One time, Solomon says this in the book of Proverbs, good discipline is age appropriate, incident appropriate, and cost appropriate. I think this is important um, because grounding a two-year-old for a week from their room, in their room, that makes no sense and is profoundly unwise right? You shouldn't do that. The, the, the punishment should be age appropriate. They should be incident appropriate, right? If your child looks at you with a crayon, you're like, don't break it. And they're like, you should probably punish that. And you should probably do so in an age appropriate and, um, and honestly, incident appropriate manner. It should be done that way. And you need to make sure you're doing that. If, you, if your 17-year-old is doing some terrible things, you're like, that's it. I'm taking your bike. They don't care, because they have a car most likely. They're driving around. Take real things. I'm telling you this. Take this. Remove it from their life and watch them shake because they can't bear it. Ground them from this. Take it. And you can say, they won't let me touch their phone. You're their mom and dad. Touch their phone. Who cares what they say about it? You're their parents. You probably own this thing, and just because they don't like you touching it doesn't mean you can. Touch it, take it, own it. It's yours. If you want to ground them from something that gets their attention, this. We'll just have a moment. This. Please take it from them. And don't let them go to their rooms with it at night. Other than that, that's just a different side note. Take this. All right, back into it. So age appropriate. Do these things that get their attention, that correct a behavior. Here's the thing. Do this one thing that's really important to discipline. Ask God for wisdom. If you don't know how to discipline, ask God to speak wisdom into your life and give you a method or a way to do it because he knows your child. He knit them together in mother's, your womb, and he has called you to raise them up. He'll give you wisdom if you ask. Also, be careful not to punish children for accidents. Milk spills. It doesn't mean they're horrible people. Now, maybe they need to have a consequence for being careless and having an accident, but just because your, chi- your kid trips and falls doesn't mean they need to be yelled at. Don't punish accidents, things they couldn't help. 
Be, be gracious. Don't punish things that don't deserve a consequence. So if they spill, help them clean it up and show them. If they oversleep and miss um, the bus, don't call them in. Let them get a tardy. Let them face a consequence. If they do it a few times, let them enjoy a nice winter walk to school or just miss the day unexcused. You'll get their attention. If they make accidents, you don't have to punish them, but you also don't have to excuse everything if they're repetitive behavioral accidents. Don't punish accidents. The fifth thing, uh, it's show and tell time. Show and tell. Uh, Man, he uses this a lot in the book of Proverbs. My son, and it's kind of this look at me. If, If you've ever seen kids in Spanish immersion, when they go to a Spanish immersion class, uh, they go into the class and, and they can go in there speaking nothing. Spanish immersion, Mandarin immersion. Kids can go into a class speaking Mandarin, which doesn't have the Latin root, which a lot of our are Spanish, English, Italian, French, it's a Latin root to that, so we can get to that language and make sense of it. I'm telling you, Mandarin, we don't have a root with. And kids go to Chinese immersion and they come out and they're like Speaking Chinese in a matter of months. Why? Why are they able to speak Mandarin fluently? Because they're immersed in it. It's all they speak in. Because of the necessity of learning what's being shared, their brain literally goes into absorption mode and they're absorbing what's going on and they speak the language. Here's the thing, and this is a terrifying thing. Your children, your nieces, your nephews, your grandchildren, the people, maybe your employees, all these people, All these young people looking up at you are in adult immersion with you. It's adult immersion. They're looking at you figuring out how to be a grown-up. That's terrifying. That doesn't feel great unless we're willing to grow and change. They're in adult immersion with you. Identify with them. Number six, identify with them. Here's the thing. Um, Finding common ground is key. Let them know that you're scared too, that you don't know what to do as well. There's times when we just identify with our kids. My children don't really know that I was terrified of the dark, of like wheat bread. I was scared of everything when I was little. I still get heckled when I go back uh, to my family. Like, oh, remember how scared Eric was? I'm like, hey, hey, stop. Like, I get tired of being heckled for how fearful I was. And my kids are always shocked when they find out like, yeah, I was scared too. I did not like the dark. Sometimes I still run to the house when I'm in it. I don't like the dark. It's a little creepy to me. But here's the thing. We can identify with them. I felt insecure too. I felt ugly too. I felt rejected too. I didn't make that team when I was your age either. I got benched too. I didn't get to be in the musical too. I didn't, I didn't. And identify with them. Let them know that you're human. You're not somebody who just aced it through life. Identify with them and share in their struggles. And then encourage them. Encourage them. Speak words of life. Give them hope. You've worked really hard. I've seen a lot of hard work in you. I think you're going to do great in that exam. I think your trial's going to go wonderfully. I think you're ready for this. I'm ready to take the next step with you because I see how hard you've worked. I see the gifts in you. Speak encouragement to them. He speaks three times, my son, and then gives a direct encouragement 
He, he speaks encouragement. We have to encourage them. And you can say things that matter. Like I noticed how you treated that kid who was out there kind of on their own and you pulled them close. I love that. That makes my heart glad to see you be kind and tender in a cynical world. You have a heart and I love that about you. Encourage the things that matter and weigh a lot in this world. And finally, love them. Man, just love them. Love on them. Proverbs 23, 26 begins, my son, give me your heart. How much closer intimate language can you have? Think of the language. Loving them is wanting to know them closely. The more you give, your ch- give to your children, the more you pour into them, the more you love them, the more you serve them and care for them in appropriate ways. You don't have to pamper them, but the more you pray over them, the more you serve them in unseen and careful, intentional ways, the more you will love them and the more your heart is for them. You'll quit being so critical and you'll start getting a coach's heart because when you pray over someone continually, it's hard to hate them. It's hard to be mad at them. It's hard to resent them. Love your children. Try it just this week. Try it just this week. Love them. Love them. Love them in a unique new way. Find, just sit back and stare at them for a minute and remember some of the wonder and good things that God put into them. Love them. Because when you see those things, then speak them out. Encourage them, bless them, love them. Speak out your love and affection. Try to do it this week. When they roll their eyes, which sometimes eyes roll so far, you think, are they coming back? When they give you a short answer, you know, and they're kind of rude to you, just love them. Love them. When they reject your first invite, love them. Wait till their eyes roll back down, be like, yeah, I'm still here. I was just wondering, do you want to go? Do you want to come with me? Is everything okay? Is there anything I can do? Love them in real practical ways. The real practical way that I see God loving us is in the the scripture that says, I believe it was by the apostle Paul, while we were yet sinners, so while we were willfully living in sin, Christ died for us. How much better of an example could we have of parental love? Pray with me. Lord Jesus Christ, we love you and thank you for who you are. Thank you for the gift of children in our lives, whether we're parents, whether we're instructors, or whether we're just adults who set an example. Uh, thank you for the gift of these children. And we ask God that as we lead, coach, and uh, raise kids up, I pray that you would help us do so in a tenderness and a love that you have that would also come with a strength and a tenacity to do the hard things and do the fun things with a great deal of joy. God, thank you. Thank you so much for the kids that get to be a part of uh, our lives. Thank you for, for filling our lives with kids because it's like having light and sunshine. They are just wonderful, and we thank you for the very gift of their presence in this church, in our homes, in our class classrooms. May you, God, give us the wisdom and patience to do the coaching well. In Jesus' name, amen. There were a few times where uh, we were in a critical situation in a game and Coach Enright um, would be, uh, he was usually at third base because he didn't trust any of us to do it. And he'd be like, meet. And the umpire would say to him, no, no. And he would walk across the diamond, which is not 
illegal. And he would grab me like either by the little ear thing on the helmet or by my shirt. And he would say to me something about what was going on. And he would tell me something. And usually it was, he's going to give me the take sign. Do not swing at the pitch no matter what. He'd know the pitcher was struggling. And he wouldn't, he wouldn't let me. He would see the game, right? He could see it going on. And he knew I wouldn't listen without a close up front thing. And he would call me over. He had that, that funky um, tobacco breath, and he had just, he'd, he'd give me some instructions. And, and there, those memories are kind of precious to me because he would take what was weighing on his heart and he would lay it on me, and he would expect me to do something. And there was one time where he told me to swing no matter what. He was given a slower runner the go sign. He needed to advance him to second base and get the force off. And he, and he literally said, he said, I don't care what the pitch looks like, swing. I think, I, I just remember I swung and we were all laughing. It was such a horrendous pitch. There, I could have thrown the bat at a bird and had a better chance, right? But I swung, the guy made it to second base, and he screamed, you did it. And he was all happy about it. But here's the thing, he saw the game. Our heavenly father sees it. He sees big. So be concerned for your kids about the things that are going on. Be concerned for them in a wise way. Who are the children in your life that are looking up? Maybe you're not aware of who's looking up at you. Be aware of it, look around and pay attention. What things has God put on your heart to be concerned about? Maybe in this time you feel a weight of concern. Listen to the Spirit of God as he impresses on you these things. Listen to the closeness as he pulls you close and says, these are things that you need to be concerned about. And he's telling you, you don't have to listen, but it'll bless the whole family if you do. Just listen and listen to those things that God is impressing on you to be concerned about. And then act on it, but act in wisdom. How will you show your concern for what's going on? Don't yell at them. Don't be a critic. Coach well. Coach them well, and you'll see magnificent results. Magnificent results. So whatever your role is in the lives of children, I pray that this week our children feel a weight lifted on and off of them and a blessing poured out on them as we, the church, coach them in what it is to become someone who's grown up and mature in the faith and lacking in nothing. As you go, may the Lord bless you. May the Lord keep you. May the Lord cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, it is time for you to steal. You have to leave. It was just a weird way of saying go. It's time to go home.